I think I've received the warmest reception here, more so than any of the churches that I have visited. Um, even Jane even had Starbucks waiting for me. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been told that I'm excitable before, but if you, it seems like I'm vibrating, it's, uh, it's the coffee. But I am, in fact, very excited to be with you all this morning. My name, again, is Jeremy. And uh, something I was excited about when I got the invitation to come be with y'all is that I get a chance to wear the the robe. I don't get to wear it at all the churches that I visit. And uh, something I was really excited about today was getting to put a stole on. A lot of these liturgical clothes that the preachers wear, uh, there's debate about what it means and where it came from. Like, a lot of us are really certain why we wear these things. Some of us just wear it because we're told to by the church that hires us. But the actual source of some of the traditions is obscure, and we're not sure what it's all about. But one of the theories, one of the ideas that a lot of folks like about the stole is that it is traced to today's passage in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, my yoke is easy, that sort of putting on the stole is like an act of obedience and symbolizing putting on that yoke. So very excited to get to wear a yoke for a yoke sermon. So today's lectionary passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We'll read 16 to 19 and then jump to 25. So I'm going to just go ahead and start. So Jesus says, but to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. He goes on, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We wailed, but you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating or drinking, and they said, He has a demon! And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at this glutton and drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This uh, this first part of the passage, it's, uh, it's pretty weird. And we don't hear it preached on very often. Now, we, we hear part of this passage frequently, the burden and the yoke. We like that part. Uh, but a lot of us preachers are tempted to kind of decapitate this reading and take the first part off just because of its strangeness and just preach the end. It's like Jesus says that the people around him, it's like he says they're missing it that they're confused about what's going on around them, and they don't seem to care about what's important. They're missing the party. The music is playing, but nobody's dancing. John the Baptist, a prophet, comes to them living in the wilderness in simplicity, and they call him a demon because of his strangeness and otherness. And then Jesus, the Messiah, comes to them, eating and drinking, dining with sinners and tax collectors and bringing people in to the good news. And they they look at him and they call him a glutton. Then there's this line about wisdom being vindicated by her deeds. It's like Jesus is saying, if you're paying attention, if you really were paying attention, you'd know what was going on. You can hear one of Jesus' catchphrases about those who have ears to hear resonating with this passage, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Picking back up, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, 
for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and the Son will reveal the Father to those whom he chooses to. So Jesus tells us that all these folks are missing it. We played the flute, but you didn't dance. The music is playing, but most folks are just still standing against the wall like a boy at a middle school dance. And, and all of these folks, they're supposed to be joining in with the excitement of what God is doing. But they're too caught up in other things. Public appearances, status, ladder climbing, politics, maybe even just religion itself. And they can't see it. Jesus then points out what kind of people aren't missing the party. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Which shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Remember Matthew 18? I tell you, Jesus says, unless you change and become like these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a lowly position like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about those who aren't trying to play games with God, but those who are rather, they're simply following, loving, doing the work of the kingdom of God with childlike faith. They can hear the music. Then Jesus seems to turn and address us directly, which is always a dangerous moment. And he says, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary in carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light the term yoke here has a double meaning in the time of Jesus a yoke that term it, it referred to a rabbi's teaching their way of understanding the Bible and applying it and the imagery that it's using, it's pulling on this agricultural idea, this farming tool of a yoke, the, the big wooden harness that you put on animals uh, to put them together, usually something like oxen or horses, some sort of burden animal. And you yoke them together in order to combine their strength and pull something like a plow or a wagon. So the, the image here is partnership, work, and obedience. So what kind of partnership is this Jesus looking for? Jesus is looking for people who know what time it is, those who can hear the music. And, and how do we know what time it is? How can we hear the music? How do we know where Jesus is leading and what God is up to? Verse 19 told us, wisdom. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So let's talk about that for just a minute. In English, the word wisdom, it, it tends to describe how people are able to use their knowledge or experiences. It, it has to do with experience and knowing how things work and fit together. But in Hebrew, the word wisdom is, is richer, it's bigger, it points to another deeper reality. The people who wrote the Old Testament, they believed that there was this creative force that held 
reality together. This force was mysterious and powerful and benevolent. It was a, an aspect of God and a tool used by God. It was the means by which God designed, ordered, and built the creation, the cosmos, the, the world, and how God now governs all of creation. This force, they called it wisdom in Hebrew, chokmah. While this wisdom, it belongs to God, God has made it available to humans, allowing us to be creators alongside God to produce a more just and beautiful world, because that, that's what this chokmah wisdom is up to. When people are using their natural abilities, their gifts, to make the world a better place, a more just place, a more loving place, they are tapping into the chokmah wisdom of God. Whenever people are using their abilities in selfish ways, to, to hurt others, to, to climb ladders, whatever it is, that they're trying to do, they're working against chokmah. So there's what we can think of as a conventional understanding of wisdom, a, a tool fashioned out of knowledge and sharpened over the wheel of time. A, a while back, I asked a group of teenagers about wisdom, and I think the best answer they came up with was that it's applied knowledge. It's knowing things, but knowing what to do with your knowing. But the thing is, if it's applied knowledge, you can apply your knowledge in a lot of different ways. So you can take that, that skill, that applied knowledge, that wisdom, and wield it to build a really beautiful life for you and yours. You can take that wisdom and use it to win. You could, what's, what's the phrase, invent a better mousetrap and uh, let the world beat a path to your door. But if that path leads only to you, it's a dead end. If the wisdom you collect only allows you to climb over others, to acquire wealth, to build a better life for yourself, to navigate the system, to satisfy your ambition, that wisdom is not the divine chokmah, but rather utterly opposed to the wisdom of God. Jesus is calling us to tap into that true wisdom, this wisdom that God has shared with us, the wisdom that God has given us access to to change the world. Jesus is looking for people who can see what's going on, who can hear the music, those who are open to where Jesus is leading and what God is up to, those who can dance to the rhythm of the kingdom of God, those who can sense the new things that God is doing in the world, those who are willing to be yoked to this chokmah wisdom of God. So, how do you activate this wisdom? By obeying Jesus' teachings. It, that's the yoke, right? In the language of this passage, by carrying the yoke of Christ. But nobody carries the yoke alone, because that's not how yokes work. Remember, the yoke has a double meaning here of being the teaching. The yoke is the teaching. It's the tool but a tool, a teaching, is useless without application. The yoke, a yoke that isn't pulling anything, it's not worth anything. It's just a heavy piece of farming equipment. So what are we supposed to do 
with this tool, with the teachings of Christ, with this yoke? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to climb in, which is scary. It can be scary to get yoked to Jesus. Who knows what this guy is up to? To look at the world and think about applying Jesus' teachings to it, that can be terrifying. We say that we, that we follow God, what this God is doing, this God of the Bible, this Jesus. But what, what does this Jesus expect from us? Well, I've made a list. To seek justice, to love mercy, to live in humility, to honor the image of God in all people and treat them with dignity, to love our enemies and pray for those who hate us, to elevate others and make less of ourselves, to practice being humble, to practice repentance, to practice being submissive to the word of God, to be people of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, to live by faith and prayer and discipline, to live in unity, ow, that one's hard, to live in unity and love, to welcome the outsider and the foreigner, to not cling to our achievements or status, not to consider our wealth or financial situation to be its own ends, but as a tool to serve, to emulate Jesus, even unto death, to imitate his way of living and operating in the world, to care for the vulnerable and those who are despised and rejected. And if not just that, Jesus tells us that we have to do all this publicly, you have to live your Christian life out in the world. In fact, you're supposed to take this thing to the whole world, right? That's the Great Commission. Go, teach, disciple, baptize, the whole world. This is radical stuff. There's a reason that in Acts 17, when Paul and the missionaries arrive in the city of Thessalonica, the people say, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jesus invites us into a way of living that is not centered around us. A life that Jesus says will attract scorn, confusion, persecution, exclusion for the practitioner. Many have faced death for following this Jesus. This does not sound like a light burden or an easy yoke to carry. The call is only, you know, to change the world. And the promise is that it won't be easy. And the Bible understands this. Writers like Paul say things like, if you're going to pull this off, you're going to have to take your whole life and make it a sacrifice. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Acts 14, we must go through many hardships. The missionaries writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 say, we are hard-pressed on every side, confused, persecuted, and struck down. Hebrews 12 says to welcome the inevitable hardships that come with following Christ. It's like the burn means it's working kind of theology. And it just goes on and on and on like this. Jesus even tells us in Matthew 16 that if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
Speaking about this verse, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote that when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. And there's no way around it. The call to follow Jesus is a call to pick up the cross and follow him to Golgotha, to the hill of execution, towards humiliation, suffering, and death. This doesn't sound easy or light. But as we decide to follow Jesus, we uh, reach out to take up that heavy cross beam that we will carry to our execution stake. We see its weight, its risk, its brutality, its danger, but we move towards it out of love and obedience to Jesus. But something strange happens as we place it over our shoulders, the weight that we were expecting It's not there. And then we realize. We turn and see that this heavy crossbeam is actually a yoke and that Jesus is sharing the weight with us. Jesus has done the heavy lifting, the weight of the cross, the pain of rejection, the sting of death. Jesus has taken it all And the cross that was meant to kill us is now a tool meant to empower us. When we take up this cross, when we live the cruciform life, the cross becomes the means by which Jesus joins us, partners with us, gets in the dirt with us, does the work with us, ties himself to us in in this yoke, in his teaching, in this gift of chokmah wisdom. When we live in line with the wisdom of Jesus, we're pulling in the same direction as him. When we're pulling towards the kingdom of God, the work is easy. The burden is light. Because we don't work alone. But with the chokmah wisdom of God. When we work in cooperation with this chokmah wisdom, when we work in cooperation with what Jesus is doing in the world, when we're pulling in the same direction, the burden is light and the yoke is easy because it is shared, because we are working with, pulling with Jesus. And here's the thing. If we try to change the world our way, If we try to do the work on our own, working towards our goals and our vision of what the world should be like, the yoke becomes tedious, oppressive, heavy. But when we work with Jesus on his terms, towards his goals, his vision for the world, we discover the marvel, the genius of the yoke, the technology itself. Because an oxen can pull approximately 5,000 pounds of weight. You can get a cart, load it up, 5,000 pounds, an oxen, they got it. But here's the marvel of the yoke. One oxen can pull 5,000 pounds. Two oxen, yoked together, can pull approximately 15 pounds. The yoke doesn't add 
it multiplies. Through direction, cooperation, unity, and purpose, it doesn't add, it multiplies. Our impact isn't just increased through partnership with Jesus. It is expanded exponentially to the level of eternal significance. But it comes down to whether or not you're willing to take on the yoke to be bound to Jesus, to be bridled to the kingdom of God, relinquishing the way we think we should go, and instead allowing Jesus to guide our steps, giving up our freedom, giving up our autonomy, giving up our life, as Jesus would say, in order to find it, to find life, and not just ordinary life, but life in the kingdom of God that in John 10, 10, Jesus says, is full life, the fullest kind of life available. But if your walk with Jesus, if it feels like a burden, if your walk with Jesus feels like work, if your walk with Jesus feels like a slog, like it's meaningless, like it's fruitless, like it's just another label or activity or chore, social gathering, whatever, then it's time to re-evaluate. It's time for, for a gut check, right? We've got to look in that mirror. Are we really following Jesus? Like, really following? Seeking to live in obedience to his teachings and his way of life? Or are we just, you know, clinging to the idea of Jesus? Because most people like Jesus, right? It's hard to find someone who says that they don't like Jesus. But are we really following? Are we clinging to the idea of Jesus, but still holding on as our own boss, our own leader, our own king, our own God, living by our rules and our desires? Today is a day to decide. And I'm not talking about some emotional decision or rededication or with every eye closed and head bowed kind of moment. Today, Jesus is calling you, calling us, calling me to decide to live in obedience, to take up the cross, to take up that heavy cross beam and allow it to tie us to Jesus, to let it bind us to what Jesus is doing in the world. The invitation is to join in with the hokmah wisdom of God, to join in the work of realizing the kingdom of God, of bringing about more and more justice and righteousness and beauty and love in the world, and of finding ourselves more alive than we could have ever imagined possible. The music is playing. Can you hear it? Are you ready to get off the wall and dance? Are you ready to submit to the call of Jesus to take up your cross in order to realize that what you've taken up is greater than anything that you might have laid down in order to lift it? And to discover that in submitting to the wisdom and way of Jesus, that the yoke is easy and the burden light. Amen.